Last week, we celebrated Easter and the resurrection of Jesus. This week, we find ourselves in the middle of the farewell discourse as Jesus addresses his disciples as he prepares to take on the cross. And in our text, we also see the final I am statement given to us by Jesus here as he says, I am the true vine. Our text tells us that the goal of discipleship is to bear fruit. In other words, following Christ means resembling Christ or becoming Christ-like. So a question I would like us to consider this morning is how do we become fruitful disciples of Christ? How do we become fruitful disciples of Christ? The gospel message today is that Jesus is the true vine, we are the branches, and love is the fruit. Now, I want to show us a picture. I, I, have a, I don't like to show pictures, but I think it will be helpful. Let me tell you why. Uh, growing up in youth group, when Jesus said, take my yoke for it is easy, I had no other categories except just egg yolks. And so for the longest time, I was confused but thought, Perhaps once I go to seminary, I'll have a better understanding of what Jesus means by taking on his egg yolks. And even through a year's past, I would always order it at breakfast over easy because I'm a good Christian. And later, after youth group, sometime in college, I think it was, I find out, oh, when Jesus says, take my yolk, it's, it's not egg yolks. I knew that. I just didn't know what the proper understanding was, so I stuck with the egg yolk thing for a while. It's actually that picture there where cattle are yoked together. So this has nothing to do with today's sermon, but the reason I want to show you this picture is because it's helpful to have a proper visual in our mind as we go through today's text. It might be simple, and I don't want to... Um, uh, insult anyone's intelligence here, but I just, I, I like to take myself as the uh, dumbest common denominator and, and imagine maybe, maybe there's one other person out there who needs a little visual. So this is what we're looking at today, the vine, the branches, and the fruit. And again, the gospel message is that Jesus is the vine, we are the branches, and love is the fruit. And so we'll look at these three points, the vine, the branches, the fruit, and I'll be upfront with you, we'll spend most of our time in the first point here, hence the asterisk, but once we get through that, we'll move right along. So if you're taking time and, and you got me on the clock, don't be discouraged as, as we wrap up point one. So let's jump into this, the vine. In verse one, Jesus says that he is the true vine and that God the Father is the vine dresser. This illustration of vine is often used to describe Israel. Let me give you an example here. There was an expectation. If we look in Isaiah 4, 2, it says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Isaiah 27. In days to come... Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. And so this was the expectation of Israel as a vine. 
But what we see actually on ground level is something different, something more disheartening. In Isaiah 5, we're told that he, God, dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. You can take the translation, sour grapes, and we see the wrath of God here as he looks upon the fruit, as he looks upon Israel to bear fruit, to bear grapes, but all they yield is sour grapes. And it's interesting to note that Jesus on the cross as he hung was given the sour grapes as he took on the wrath of God's judgment. So what do we do here? The expectation was so high that Israel would would produce wine or produce uh, grapes. And yet we see here only wild grapes are coming out. That judgment is pending. But we see hope as the psalmist writes in Psalm 80. He writes this, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. You took deep root and filled the land. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall turn back, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. We see that Israel is referred to as God's son. But this son, Israel, the people of God, we know from history, are so prone to wander, prone to disobedience, and they could not bear the fruit on their own. Yet the psalmist gives us a bit of a foreshadow here. We know that Jesus is the true son, the true vine, who was planted, or if you will, for illustration purposes, was buried, so that through his death, he would put forth shoots of life and fill the whole world with fruit, of which he is the first fruits. You know, I think many of us are like the Israelites, aren't we? They multiplied. They multiplied so much the Egyptians were afraid and enslaved them. Yet they were unable to produce fruit. And as we think about the creation mandate that God gives to man to be fruitful and multiply, we see the people of God here, they're good at multiplying, but they can't produce fruit. You and I, we're, we're, we're good at getting busy. Excuse the pun. But are we fruitful? Even in our churches, we're multiplying, we're growing, in fact. But are we producing fruit, brothers and sisters? Are we producing fruit that is sweet, that God looks upon and is pleased? We are a busy people. Much of our busyness drives us mad. Yet we find it so hard to produce good fruit, don't we? So then we're told here in verse 2 that the Father takes away and he prunes so that the whole vine may bear more fruit. 
The Father does one of two things to ensure that not only the individual branches, you and I, yield the maximum amount of fruits, but he also does one of two things to make sure that the whole vineyard, the whole church, the whole people of God is beautiful, flourishing, fruitful, sweet, going into the whole world. One, the Father takes away. We're told in verse 2 that he takes the dead branches away. He cuts them off and he puts it away because these branches do not draw life from the vine. These branches are no longer alive. And if they stay, they will keep the fruitful ones from growing. So one act that the Father does that he cuts and he takes away A second thing he does that is very distinct from the first is he prunes. He prunes the branches. He prunes off and trims parts of the branches that are causing decay. And he prunes and he trims anything that will hinder the branches from bearing fruit. If one area is growing too much, if one area is infected or diseased, if one area is weighing down the branch or the whole vine itself, God the Father, the vine dresser, comes and he trims to ensure not only the good of the branch, but the life of the whole. So he prunes it. Pruning can be uncomfortable. Pruning may seem like he is cutting us away, but he is pruning anything that causes decay so that the vine, the whole, the branches may be fruitful. And as we listen to this, we wonder, which one am I? And perhaps if you have not found your faith and your life in Christ yet, you are not drawing life from him. But I imagine most of us, we fall in the other category, We trust the Lord, we've given our life to him, but we struggle, and our life doesn't seem too fruitful, but we do indeed believe, we do indeed hang on, we do indeed pray, we do indeed desire. And remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. Because this is a tough saying, he also gives the disciples here an assurance. God's word gives you who are in Christ an assurance, not to doubt. Verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Jesus says the same thing when he washes Peter's feet, doesn't he? When Jesus washes Peter's feet, Jesus, or Peter says, whoa, Jesus, not just my feet, then my whole body. And Jesus says, no, you are already clean. I'm just washing your feet. What does that mean? The word of God sanctifies. If we look in verse 3, this is what Jesus says. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Take a look here at Ephesians 5. Husbands, this is an example for husbands. This is just a bonus for you today, wives, so that your husband will love you a little better. Here we go. Ephesians 5, but you'll see where we're going with this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present 
the church to himself in splendor without any spot or wrinkle or, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We see here that cleansing is tied to sanctifying. And these things that are one of the same, being cleansed, being sanctified, is done by the word. Jesus says to his disciples, to all who follow him, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. This means that the word of God prunes us. Not human will, not passive aggression, no matter how much we're convinced that that solves our problems. Not trying to teach someone a, a life lesson. But the word of God prunes. The word of God sanctifies. The word of God cleanses. The word of God gives life, renews. It's the word of God that prunes us. But be encouraged. Even though we need continual pruning, this doesn't mean that we are not already clean. Jesus tells Peter, you are already clean. But as a sign of continual cleansing of his spiritual feet, so to speak, that are so prone to wander, he washes his feet as if to say, no matter how far you go, no matter how much dust you collect, because you are clean by the word I have spoken to you already, I will continue to wash you. In other words, we have been sanctified to a new life once for all, yet we are made perfect through a process in which God prunes us and grows us. Brothers and sisters, this is why pruning is necessary. Pruning is the way God sanctifies us, allows us to become more like Christ. Pruning is how God grows us. Let me make it real for us, because whenever I ask, what is your prayer request? Or whenever I ask the leaders, what do you want to pray for our church? The number one answer is that we would grow, that we would mature. And yes, and amen, but do you know what that means? To ask God to grow us and mature us. We're asking the Father to prune us. When we ask God to mature us, to grow us, we're asking him to prune anything that would get in the way from us becoming more like Christ. And that can be painful. That can be uncomfortable. That can be irritable. It takes a lot of patience. So it's no wonder perhaps many of us are feeling these things because we have indeed been praying that the Lord grow us as a church, as a body, as individuals. So don't be irritated, be encouraged, be cheerful, be excited that God is pruning us, that God is pruning you. And in verse four through five, this is why Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. For if the branch is not in the vine, there is no flow of life and it's cut off and thrown into the fire and burned as eternal judgment, as verse six tells us. So how can we ensure that the branch is indeed drawing life, drawing life from the vine? Well, if you have yet to trust the Lord, I'd say a, a prayer of faith for the one who does not believe and faithful prayers for the one who already believes. To come to the Lord, to draw life, to be pruned, to be engrafted into the vine, into Christ, the one who is fruitful, the one who is called the first fruits 
because we are the many harvests to follow. Brothers and sisters, don't be discouraged if you're struggling and life seems tough. The loving Father is most likely pruning you. And if you have yet to trust the Lord, come to him. Be pruned so he can make room for greater joys. So the vine we see is Jesus. Point two, the branches. In verse 7 through 8, Jesus says, Ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. What Jesus is saying is, pray. If this seems difficult, then ask the Father and it will be given to you in Jesus' name. We're talking about prayer here. If you abide in Jesus and he abides in you, ask whatever you wish according to his will through prayer in the mighty name of Jesus because the Father is glorified by the branches that bear fruit. Branches that draw life and bear fruit from the Son. Because we're told it proves indeed that we are disciples of Christ. What Jesus is saying is, if you abide in me and you're struggling, ask, pray in my name to the Father according to his will, and everything you need will be given to you because that's how the Father is glorified. That's how the Son is proven. That's how we realize that we are disciples of Christ. Disciples of Christ come to him and ask him constantly for strength, reminder, Encouragement, teaching. This is a branch that is in the vine of Christ. And to further motivate his disciples, Jesus assures us of his love for us. In verse 9 through 11, Jesus says, I love you as the Father loves me. Whoa! Let's not take this for granted. He says, I love you like the Father loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves you like the eternal Father loves the eternally begotten Son. The love that Jesus shows you is the love that was given to him by the Father. What I'm trying to say is, the love of God the Father that is given to Christ, the love that they shared for eternity past, the love that they knew, the love that draw, drew them to unity is the same love that Jesus says, I love you. This is how I love you. And so again, we're reminded, we've heard it before a couple weeks ago in another sermon, but we don't show love to others according to how they treat us. No, we show love according to how we have received it from Jesus, who has received it from his Father. Jesus goes on in verse 10. If you keep my commandment, you will abide in my love. There is an obedience with love. There is a faithfulness to love. There is a loyalty to love. There is a following the words of the one you love. Jesus says, keep my commandment 
and you will abide in my love. How do you stay in Jesus' love? You keep his commandment. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus tells us that his love should motivate us to pray and keep his commandments so that the Father is glorified, the Son proven, and our joy made full. These things I have spoken to you, Jesus says to his disciples. These things I have spoken to you, Jesus says to us, so that his joy may be in us and that our joy may be full. That it will be his joy that when God prunes and takes away all things that are unnecessary, all things that are holding us back, all things that are causing decay, all things that are pulling us down, what he is doing is making room for the full joy of Christ that he is giving to you. When God takes away, he gives you something way better. The call to Christ, the call to the cross, the gospel message is good news because it tells you to come lay down your junk and pick up precious jewels to come lay down the glittering things of this world to gaze upon the light of the world to embrace and call your own the light of the world Jesus says I have spoken these things to you so that your joy may be full so that you will look to no other thing to be filled for joy so then we have to ask don't we what is this commandment what is this thing that Jesus is saying? What is the fruit? Our third point, our final point. Verse 12. The commandment is to love one another as I have loved you. Jesus is saying the same thing. The theme of love, the theme of being loved and loving others is still here if it felt good a couple weeks ago and now you're like, oh, man, I'm getting tired of these people again. Well, here's a reminder. Jesus calls us to love one another, brothers and sisters. By now, you've probably tried. It's gotten hard again. And there's a reminder, a joyful reminder, that Jesus loves you. Think about how many, how many times you messed up since the last time you heard that Jesus loves you. And Jesus is telling us still, I still love you. I still love you after weeks of all that nonsense. I still love you. And so I'm going to tell you again, still love others like you have been loved. Verse 12, remind us of the new commandment to love one another as we have been loved. Jesus is commanding his disciples, us, once more to love one another. After Jesus washes his disciples' feet, he says, do this for one another. In John 13, 35, he says this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one another. What Jesus is saying is plain and simple. By loving one another, the outside world will see that you are disciples of Christ. What is he saying? The best way to evangelize, the best way to witness to the good news of Jesus Christ is to love one another in-house. 
is to love your brothers and sisters, is to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. The greatest witness, the greatest testimony to the gospel, the best way to invite people into the faith is to not just talk about it, but to live it out in such a way that they see love is real here. Through all the dirty laundry, through all the stinky feet, through all the times we step on each other's toes, we are willing to love, forgive, and continue to move on in the race. Brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus is telling us. How do we make disciples of all nations? Well, we start here by loving one another. And organically, naturally, as organic and natural it is for the branch to bear fruit, drawing life from the vine, people will see love, the love of Christ. Verse 13, Jesus continues, in case you have forgotten the good news, in case his disciples have forgotten what Jesus is talking about, in case the disciples have forgotten what Jesus came to do, in case the disciples all of a sudden forgot what the mission of Christ was, he reminds them, he reminds you, he reminds me, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is telling his disciples once more what he is about to do. As he gives his farewell speech, as he makes his way to the cross to be lifted up, he reminds them, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. To borrow the vine language, he is going to give up his life as the true vine, be put into the ground so that many branches, many sons, will be engrafted into him and have life so they can bear fruit as proof that God loves his own. He is reminding them of the gospel message that is about to take place, that is about to come into fruition, that is about to be completed by Jesus Christ himself. Brothers and sisters, this is the type of love that Jesus has shown us, that he laid down his life for us so that in his death we would be engrafted, united, joined with him to draw life for all eternity, to bear fruit that is sweet, not sour and bitter. This is the good news. Jesus is telling his disciples, telling us, that he loved us so much that he gave his own life for us. But he goes further. He makes it more intimate. Jesus calls his disciples friends. When Jesus calls us friends, he is not lowering himself to us but rather elevating us to himself and allowing us to join him, to sit at his table, to live as a son in the Father's house. Yes, Jesus humbles himself, 
But let me give you an illustration here. Jesus already came and sat with the tax collectors, the whores, and other sinners. He has already recognized himself, identified himself as one of them. When he calls us friends, he is allowing you to recognize yourself with him now. What Jesus is doing here is not coming to sit at your lunch table. He comes to our lunch table filled with rejects and losers, wretched, sinful, backstabbing people. He tells us how much he loves us. He washes our feet. He tells us the good news that he's going to give his life for us and that when he leaves, he's going to send the Holy Spirit so we remember all these things. And by calling us friend, what he is doing is he is inviting us to come to his lunch table. Come to my table. You're no longer rejects. You're no longer wretched, despised, ostracized people who are unwanted and dirty. You are clean, for I have spoken my word over you. Come, sit at my table. I will call you friend. I will stick up for you. You can identify yourself with me. I have identified myself with you, and now I will give you the joy and the privilege and the honor to be called my friend. Jesus calls his disciples friends. Jesus calls you and I friends. He says, come sit at my table. My food is better. My wine is better. My food never stops. My wine never ceases to flow. I want to eat at that table. I just imagine it at a buffet. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus calls you, when Jesus invites you, put your ribicues down. Put your mac sticks down. Put your grilled cheese and tomato soup down and come to the buffet where he gives himself as food, where he gives his blood as wine, where there is a feast and a banquet where he calls you friend. When someone asks you, hey, how'd you get to this table? You can say, because Jesus calls me friend. Brothers and sisters, come to that table. Come to that table. And in case, at this point, we ought to be puffed up as if, yeah, you know what? I do get to sit at the cool lunch table now with Jesus. I'm no longer over there with those rejects. Jesus reminds his disciples here quickly to humble once more. In verse 16, he says to his disciples, in case they have been puffed up in that quick of a moment, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You did not choose me. I chose you. I came to your table because I love you. I came to your table to identify myself with you to be ridiculed alongside of you. You did not choose me, but I chose you because I love you. That ought to humble us. That humbled the disciples. That ought to remind us. There was nothing. There, there, was, there was nothing of our own accord that Jesus saw and says, you know what? That guy seems overweight. He's got pimples. You know, he drives a cool car. 
At least he's got that. Maybe I'll go over there and chop it up with him. There was nothing. There was not an ounce. There was not a cool pencil that Jesus wanted to look at at your lunch table. I know I'm using an illustration for many of you are decades past, but I know you can relate. So stop pretending that you can't. Jesus saw nothing beautiful or glorious or wanting in you. Yet he came because he loved you still. He loved you because his love for you doesn't depend on any of those things. His love for you doesn't depend on those fickle things. He loves you because he loves you and he came. And he says, come to my table, friend. I chose you. Jesus is saying, don't act a fool thinking you're all that. But remember, I chose you while you were still a sinner. I died for you while you were still a sinner. What does that imply? When Jesus says to love one another, he says, don't get it twisted. Don't start acting a fool. Remember, you were not desirable. You were wretched. You were sinful. You were unwanted. Yet I loved you. So don't sit at my lunch table Look at the table you once were and judge them. He's saying, love them too because I have loved you. Don't look down at those others who are staying at the lunch table. In fact, go over in my name. Love them and wash their feet like I have done for you. Invite them to my table in my name so that they too can join and sit at my table, so you can call them brother and sister. Stop side-eyeing them. Go over. Love them like I have loved you. Tell them about the good news that I told you. Jesus is humbling his disciples. Jesus is humbling you and I. Jesus is saying there is nothing in us worthy to be chosen, yet he chose us. There's nothing in us worthy of to be loved, yet he loved us. And so, brothers and sisters, when it comes down to it, and you look at that other person, and you say, there is nothing in that person lovable. In fact, everything that that person is makes me want to despise them. Remember, do the little flippy-floppy gospel thing that we are so good at doing in our minds. And realize that that was once you, and Jesus loved you. Why does Jesus choose a bunch of wretched, disgusting, unwanted people? So that you would feel loved. So the bitterness and the callous that built out of that, out of that insecurity of people not wanting you, of you not being loved, all that bitterness, that sourness. Jesus loves you so that you would know what it feels to be loved. So you would know what it feels to produce sweet, Grapes, and not just sour, bitter ones, so that you would have, hear this, the capacity to love others the way you were loved, so that you would have the capacity to love others who are wretched and disgusting and unwanted as you once were. Verse 17, so that you would love one another. Jesus reiterates the new commandment here. I want to conclude with the question we asked once more. How do we become fruitful disciples of Christ? Simply, you remember that you who are unlovable yet 
you are loved. You abide in his love, and you love others. Though the fruit of the Spirit are, yes, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, here there is an emphasis on love, as Jesus refers to the fruit. Here there is an emphasis on love, because we know it covers over a multitude of sin. First Peter, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. The NIV puts it this way. Above all, love each other deeply. If you think you are unable to do this on your own, you're right. That is why Christ gives us and models for us love as he washes our feet. That's why he gives us peace, unlike the world that gives us. That's why he gives us joy, he says here so that we may be full, not needing anything else to fill us. Right here in the Pharaoh discourse, to the point where we are, Jesus has already given us love, peace, and joy. If you lack the ability to love, look at Christ once more. Abide in him. Apart from him, you cannot bear any fruit, especially love. Yes, loving others is hard. That's why you need to draw your life and your love from Christ who has given it to you. And how can we ensure that you are indeed drawing life from the vine? Again, a prayer of faith for the one who does not believe and faithful prayers for the one who already believes. Odds are God is pruning you in some shape or form right now. It is painful, uncomfortable, and we tend to avoid it. But be encouraged. God is sanctifying you. He is cutting away things that are keeping you from growing. Isn't that your prayer? He's cutting away things that are keeping you from maturing. Isn't that our deepest desire? He's making room for fuller joys. He's making you more like Christ. Isn't that our deepest want? He is loving you as a father loves a son. He is raising us up to be like Christ. And so today we see that Jesus is the true vine that flows life. We are the branches that receives it from him. And love is the fruit that we bear as we obey his command to love others like we have been loved. Brothers and sisters, I want to give us a moment to respond in prayer. Let's bow our heads and come to the Lord. And the first thing I ask that you reflect on before God is how much you are loved, is how Jesus chose you. And just sit on that. Let the gravity of the love of Christ press down and squish away and make sweet wine. Let the love of Christ push away any bitterness, any sourness that it has built up. And remember how much Christ loves you. There was no criteria. He just chose you. Sit on that. Jesus says he loves you with the love that the Father loves him from eternity past. Sit on that. Let that weigh you down, saturate you in love. Let that fill your joy to the fullness. And after you've done that in a couple minutes, I ask that you would ask, and come before the Lord. If you dare pray once more that he would grow you and mature you, 
In fact, that he would prune you and sanctify you so that not just you yourself would bear fruit, but the whole vine, the whole vineyard, the whole church of Christ will be made beautiful and fruitful and would go out into the world with the sweet grapes of the good news of Jesus who has drank to the fullness the sour grapes and has given us the cup of the sweet, sweet blood. Can we pray in those two ways right now?